It's the 26th of October, 1605. We're in London, England. William Parker is at his home in Hoxton. Parker, or to call him by his official title, Baron Monteagle, sits at his dining room table, eating his supper. A member of the House of Lords, he's part of the political elites in England. A knock at the door sounds. A servant enters. They claim that just now, they'd been handed a letter by an unknown stranger in the street outside, and that it's addressed to Monteagle. Perplexed, he has the servant read aloud the parchment's contents. As the servant begins to read the short letter, Monteagle's brow furrows. The letter, vague in its warning, urges him not to attend the state opening of Parliament on the 5th of November. This event would be attended not only by his fellow members of the House, but by the King himself. Upon rereading the letter, there seem to be more questions than answers. Who sent this warning? Why send it to him? And what could possibly stop him from attending the long-awaited reopening of Parliament? After taking a moment to decide what to do with this piece of information, he stands. This cannot wait. He must hand in this letter to the authorities. Monteagle takes this warning and quickly travels on horseback to Whitehall, where it would eventually be shown to the king. In the days and weeks that follow, they uncover the meaning behind this letter, and a series of arrests, imprisonments, tortures and executions follow. This investigation leads to the unravelling of a conspiracy targeting the king and parliament. Had it succeeded, it would leave the country undefended against the possibility of violence, revolts and potential invasion. Today is the 5th of November 2022. On this day, the foiling of the gunpowder plot is celebrated across Britain every year. People gather in their local parks to burn bonfires and light fireworks to celebrate the failure of the conspirators to destroy Parliament and the King. As a result, it's a pretty famous historical event that most people in the country would know about. That being said, the version of history that we learn about is highly oversimplified. By not having a full grasp of the background leading up to the event, it means we can't know what the implications of a successful gunpowder plot would mean. What would the future hold for England after the attack? Would the division between Catholics and Protestants in the country become even worse? How would it affect the other nations in the British Isles? All these questions, and more, will be explored in the following episode. My name's Tom DeLaghi, and you're listening to What If The Gunpowder Plot Succeeded, in another episode of This Is Not History. So before we dive into this alternate history scenario, let's get more of an understanding of the situation in England at the time of the gunpowder plot, so we can make a more accurate prediction. 
To do this, we need to head back roughly 80 years before the uncovering of the plot. England is a kingdom, although its territory includes Wales, which it has occupied for centuries. It also rules over Ireland as a separate entity. At the moment, England is predominantly Catholic. The English monarchy, like others throughout Europe, bowed to the authority of the Pope in Rome. Unfortunately for King Henry VIII, this puts him in a bit of a tough situation. The main requirement of the head of a hereditary monarchy is being able to provide a viable, preferably male, heir to your throne in order to preserve your dynastic lineage. Henry and his wife, Catherine, haven't been able to do so. After numerous attempts, they're unable to produce a male heir together. So Henry, blaming his wife for failing to give him a son, asks the Pope to end their marriage. This was emphatically rejected, as Roman Catholicism wholeheartedly denounces the practice of divorce. But still, Henry was adamant in his need for a divorce, and he would go to great lengths to secure one. This moment marks the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in England, when the English crown formally broke away from Rome and away from Catholicism. The coming years saw laws passed in England which diminished papal authority in the kingdom. In 1534, the Act of Supremacy was passed, which founded the new Church of England with King Henry as its supreme authority. Recognition of the Pope as the head of the Church was now deemed an act of treason. With Anglicanism now becoming the state religion in England, tensions between Protestants and Catholics across Henry's dominions worsened. Catholics were barred from practising their faith, and property formerly belonging to the Catholic churches were requisitioned by the state. Attendance to Anglican services becomes compulsory. Those who speak out against these changes are sentenced to death. Notably, the Catholic population in Ireland begins to be brutally subjugated by the English. Although there is a short period where Catholicism seems to have a bit of a comeback after Henry's death under the reign of his daughter, Queen Mary, her death after five years sees her stepsister, Elizabeth I, ascend to the throne in 1559. She continues her father's legacy and keeps Anglicanism as the state religion. Not only is there rising sectarian violence within England and Ireland as a result of the split from Rome, but there is also a breakdown of relations with Catholic powers on the continent. Between 1585 and 1604, a period known as the Anglo-Spanish War, saw intermittent fighting take place between England and Spain. This saw England supporting the Dutch revolt against King Philip II of Spain's rule, while the Spanish Armada was an attempt at a full-scale invasion of the British Isles to re-establish the Pope's authority. A good comparison that I find helpful to explain the climate in England during this time is that of the Red Scare in the United States during the 1950s. Think of it like this. There's a fear that elements within the country and beyond its borders are advancing the cause of an ideology which is fundamentally at odds with your own. A suspicious atmosphere develops as people fear this new enemy within. In this regard, they're both quite similar. By the beginning of the 17th century, the Tudor era was coming to an end. 
Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, has refused to produce an heir to her throne, causing a succession crisis. Arrangements are made to appoint an appropriate, non-Catholic candidate to replace her. They eventually agree on a man named James Stuart. He already holds the title of James VI of Scotland, and he would assume the title of King James I of England and Ireland. Queen Elizabeth dies in 1603, and he becomes the first monarch to rule over the entirety of the British Isles, England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland. Once it was announced that James would succeed Elizabeth, there was a growing sense of optimism amongst Catholics that there would be an improvement for their situation under his rule. James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, had been a devout Catholic. They hoped that this might lead James to look upon their situation with more lenient, possibly even sympathetic views. It's true that when it came to dealing with Catholic dissidents, James's preferred method of dealing with them was exile instead of execution. Regarding this matter, he's quoted to have said that he would be glad to have both their heads and their bodies separated from this whole island and transported beyond seas. While this may not sound like James was the greatest observer of religious tolerance by today's standards, at the time it seemed to some that this was a positive advancement for English Catholicism. After his coronation, however, no major steps were taken to end the persecution of Catholics within his three kingdoms, which led to attempts on the part of some Catholics to take matters into their own hands. The early days of his reign were marked by several revolts against his authority. The by-plot and the main plot of 1603 were both pretty serious events. Without going into too much detail, they aimed to remove King James and to restore a Catholic monarchy to England. These attempts are also supposedly funded by the Spanish government, reports of which exacerbate the climate of fear in England surrounding this so-called Catholic menace. It's during this period that plans are drawn up for the gunpowder plot. Although the celebration of the plot's failure is known as Guy Fawkes Day, he was not the main inspiration behind the conspiracy. That honour belongs to a man named Robert Catesby. Born around 1572 in Warwickshire, England, he was the son of Catholic parents and was raised as a relatively well-off member of the gentry. Despite this privilege, Catesby's family was on the receiving end of persecution imposed on them by the Protestant government of Queen Elizabeth. When he was a child, his father, Sir William Catesby, was incarcerated for his faith. This experience exposed the young Robert to the realities of being a Catholic in late 16th century England and led him down the path of radicalisation. Catesby involved himself in attempts at overthrowing the Protestant establishment in later years. In 1601, he took part in the Essex Rebellion, which ended in his imprisonment and him being fined the equivalent of £8.5 million in today's currency. As the death of Queen Elizabeth brought about the end of the Tudor era in 1603, Catesby sent a mission to the King of Spain, urging him to invade England. These efforts were fruitless, however, as the Spanish were intent on making peace with England. 
when it became clear that there would be no satisfactory improvement of their condition under the new King James, Catesby decided that he must take action into his own hands, with or without the aid of foreign powers. Catesby had several friends and relatives from within the same kind of background who also felt a dissatisfaction with the current climate. These relatively young, able men were otherwise barred from progression in their careers due to their religious faith, which frustrated them terribly. Catesby sought to tap into this deep disgruntlement directed at the Protestant regime to gather support for his plan. According to historical accounts, on the 20th of May 1604, a private room was booked at the Duck and Drake pub on the Strand. Here, a clandestine meeting is arranged between Catesby and four other conspirators, where they gather to discuss their distaste for the current monarchy. The four men joining Catesby were Thomas Percy, Thomas Winter, John Wright and Guy Fawkes. These five are the original conspirators and they all have a rough idea of what they're there to discuss. After further discussion, it becomes clear that they all mean business. They agree that regicide is the only thing for it. They swear oaths to secrecy and begin to draw up plans. Although not all the details are laid out in this first meeting, the plan eventually becomes this. They plan to kill King James, along with members of Parliament, prominent members of the aristocracy and Anglican bishops all in one fell swoop. To do this, they plan to strike on the state opening of Parliament, where James will lead the ceremony. This is initially set for February 1605, although it's important to bear in mind that this date does change. Due to concerns that levels of plague in London are dangerously high, Parliament's opening is delayed to the 3rd of October, 1605, in the hopes that the risk of disease will die down. So, how is it that they plan on carrying out such an audacious attack, I hear you ask? For context, the Palace of Westminster we recognise today is very different to that of the early 17th century. Back then, the Houses of Parliament were a haphazard cluster of buildings, churches, halls and chambers. Beneath these buildings are several undercrofts, which are essentially large storage cellars. The one the plotters have their eyes on is accessible via the Thames River on the banks of which Parliament sits. The conspirators purchase a lease for one of these spaces beneath the patchwork of buildings and decide that from this location, a sizeable amount of explosives could eviscerate the structure above and all within it. Thanks to the end of the Anglo-Spanish War, gunpowder had lost its value. Due to this sudden drop in demand, large quantities of cheap explosives were now available on the black market. This is how Catesby and his men managed to acquire it. A total of 36 barrels of gunpowder are purchased. They store them in the undercroft beneath Parliament and wait until the time is right, at which point Fawkes would stay behind to light the fuse and hastily escape by boat as the King and Parliament would be engulfed in a gigantic fireball. In the days following the attack, the conspirators planned to head back to the Midlands, where a Catholic revolt would erupt in the ensuing chaos. 
During this time, the now deceased King James's nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth was in Coventry. During all the commotion, they planned on kidnapping her and having her installed as the head of a new Catholic dynasty. So, that was their plan. Like I say, this was devised over the course of months after the original plotters met, and elements here and there had to be changed. For example, after their acquisition of the gunpowder, news reached them that the dates for Parliament's reopening had again been delayed by another month, this time to the 5th of November, 1605. Also, the number of people involved in the conspiracy had grown, with an additional eight people becoming involved, totalling a whole crew of 13 plotters, with Catesby at their head. The most important addition to the group came very late during the planning stage, when on the 14th of October, less than a month before the attack, Catesby invited a man named Francis Tresham to join them. Now, Catesby and Tresham went way back. They were cousins and had grown up together. Perhaps this past history between the two men, despite bringing him in in incredibly short notice, led Catesby to believe that Tresham could be counted on to play his role as a loyal, discreet participant of the plot. This might have been a catastrophic error of judgement. Although it's unconfirmed, it's believed by many credible historians that Tresham was the undoing of the entire plot. On the 26th of October, Lord Monteagle received a letter warning him to skip the state opening of Parliament on the 5th of November. To quote from the letter itself, it warns that they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. Many believe that Tresham sent Monteagle this letter of warning. This is largely due to the fact that Monteagle happened to be Tresham's brother-in-law. So, when he received a letter from a supposedly friendly individual with clearly intimate knowledge of a plot, warning him to stay away from Westminster on the 5th, he saw this as an opportunity to incur favour with the king. The letter was shown to various government officials until it was presented to James on the 1st of November. Thanks to this tip-off, it was decided that Parliament would be swept for anything suspicious, anything that might be deemed a threat to the King's life. On the day before the attack was meant to commence, the conspirators began making their final preparations for the upcoming events. Some of them, including Catesby, set off for the Midlands, from which they would gather support for their uprising after the destruction of Parliament was announced. Fawkes, the demolitions expert, stayed in the undercroft to watch over the gunpowder which had been hidden under a pile of wood. While he was there, Monteagle and others entered the undercroft while conducting their search of Parliament for anything suspicious. When asked for his name, Fawkes gave the alias of John Johnson, and that he was the serving man of Thomas Percy, to whom the quote-unquote would belonged. This aroused no suspicion initially, however, when they returned to the king to report their findings, James demanded they return to the undercroft to check again. This was because the name Thomas Percy aroused suspicion, for he was a known Catholic agitator. Later, guards were sent back to the undercroft again, where Fawkes was waiting. After a quick scuffle with the guards, he was arrested and searched. On him, they found matches and the numerous barrels of gunpowder, 
were uncovered. The plot had failed. News of a man being caught underneath Parliament with explosives soon spread. The other conspirators, realising their plan had failed, fled. Fawkes was subject to interrogation by the King's men. His resolve under pressure earned the approval of King James. However, the King decided that Fawkes should be moved to the Tower of London, where he would be tortured for information. After being subjected to lesser tortures, it's thought that he was placed on a device known as the rack, a method in which the victim's arms and legs are chained to a wooden frame. The chains are slowly retracted, stretching the victim's limbs to the point of dislocation and separation. After two days of interrogation, Fawkes cracked under the pressure, and he confessed on the 7th of November. Catesby, Percy and some of the other plotters eventually reach Holbeck House in the Midlands, a safe house, and await the King's men. On the 8th, 200 men laid siege to the house. In the ensuing gunfight, several were killed, including Catesby and Percy. After the attackers pushed on into the house, four of the remaining plotters were arrested. Francis Tresham, who elected to stay in London, was arrested on the 12th. He would later die in the Tower of London on December 23rd. Catesby and Percy's bodies were both decapitated, with their heads placed on spikes outside the House of Lords. The rest of the surviving plotters were hung, drawn and quartered. On the 31st of January 1606, Fawkes was the last to die. As he stood on the scaffold, he reportedly asked for forgiveness from the king and country. Mercifully for him, he managed to break his neck by jumping from the scaffold with the noose tied around him, avoiding the agony that would have followed. In its aftermath, the failure of the plot led to Parliament passing even more laws that persecuted Catholics in England, with legislation like the Popish Recusants Act being passed shortly after. Catholic powers in continental Europe tried to disassociate themselves as much as they could from the failed attack. The Spanish were still intent on pursuing peace with England, and so they denounced the conspirators' plans. Despite the rise in anti-Catholic sentiment that occurred immediately after the plot was uncovered, the following two centuries would see a relaxation of the rules barring Catholics from practising their religion, with their full emancipation in England occurring with the passing of the Roman Catholic Emancipation Act in 1829. To this day, Protestants are the most prominent sect of Christianity present within England, and the ruling monarch retains their title as head of the Anglican Church to this day. But what if this hadn't happened? What if the government wasn't tipped off about their plans, and Catesby's men managed to pull off the attack and destroyed Parliament and the King along with it? Well, let's find out. The main thing that would clearly need to be changed in order for this alternate history scenario to happen would be the removal of the Monteagle letter. If you take this letter out of the equation, then Monteagle doesn't go to Whitehall and show the King meaning they aren't on high alert and awaiting an attack on the 5th. So, let's work under the assumption that it was in fact Tresham who wrote this letter, hoping that it would deter Monteagle from going to Parliament on the 5th. 
the sending of this letter could have been averted, either by Tresham changing his mind, or by Catesby not involving him in the plot at all. Regardless of what it is, Monteagle doesn't receive a letter, and Fawkes is able to carry out his task uninterrupted. He lights the fuse, and on the 5th of November, 1605, Parliament erupts in a colossal fireball. King James, representatives of Parliament, members of the clergy and aristocracy are all instantly incinerated. It's estimated that nobody within 100 metres from the epicentre of the explosion could have survived. News of what had happened would spread across the country and the plotters would know pretty quickly that their mission had been a success. But this wouldn't be the end of their task. When I was writing this episode, what I had to keep reminding myself was that blowing up Parliament was merely one phase of their plan. Catesby's ultimate goal was to restore Catholicism to power. They planned on doing this in the aftermath of a successful attack on Parliament by orchestrating an uprising in the Midlands against the remnants of James's government. Here's what happens when Catesby and his men launch a revolt after the destruction of Parliament. As news travels across the country of what had occurred, the plotters race back to the Midlands. There, they begin to round up support amongst Catholics, of whom there is a high number of them in this region, to rise up. As the revolt begins to spread throughout the Midlands, counties like Warwickshire and others soon become hubs of Catholic activity. They attempt prison breaks and free persecuted Catholics to join in the rebellion. Riots break out with Catholics fighting against Protestant forces who struggle to put down the violence in a coordinated manner throughout all the chaos. They would, after all, be left totally leaderless, with a power vacuum waiting to be filled at the top. At some point during all the chaos, the now orphaned Elizabeth would be kidnapped from her residence near Coventry by an armed group of Catholics. This would be done as quickly as possible, for the longer it took for the girl to be transported safely back to London and crowned, the more time it would give Protestants to coalesce and mount some kind of an offensive. Remember, Anglicans were still the majority in England, and the plotters were counting on their demoralisation with the death of the king and bewilderment at the speed of the event. As 1606 rolls around, they would succeed in doing so. With Elizabeth being crowned Queen Elizabeth II, no, not that one, of a new Catholic regime, she would have to be re-educated as a Catholic, of course. They picked her as the heir to take James's place instead of his two older sons, Henry and Charles, as her young age makes her more impressionable to these new ideas. A regency is established for the time being. A Catholic nobleman would take over temporarily until she comes of age. The Stuart dynasty would continue after the death of James, but it would mark the beginning of a new era for England, one which it hadn't seen the likes of since before King Henry VIII. So despite the violent nature of this rapid collapse of Anglican control over England, the new regime would need to offer amnesty and religious toleration to its majority Protestant population, so as not to provoke mass protests against them. An important aspect of this whole affair to bear in mind is that this attack, if successful, would have killed a man who ruled over three kingdoms, not just one. The responses within Ireland and Scotland to this sudden lurch back to Catholicism in England 
would have been polar opposites. In Ireland, the new regime would have been met with a positive reception, and the population would enthusiastically endorse the new queen. The majority Catholic nation would work to create closer ties with England. The process of settling Protestants on plantations in Ireland for the purpose of anglicising the island would have slowed down dramatically. In the north of Ireland, famous plantations like the one in Ulster are never established by the Crown as a result. I think it's entirely possible that in this alternate scenario, there is no split between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, and definitely not one to the extent that occurred in real life. Because of this, the island is never split. The entirety of Ireland is governed from Dublin, but it would remain a client state to the English crown. While things take a turn for the better in Anglo-Irish relations if the gunpowder plot succeeds, the situation up north wouldn't be as good. Scotland would cut off diplomatic ties with England. Their Calvinist interpretation of Christianity was incompatible with Catholicism, and so they would not accept this new regime. There would also be outrage over Elizabeth's abduction and conversion to Catholicism in England, as her father had been both Scottish and Protestant. James Stuart's relatives would reclaim the Scottish throne and not bow down to the, in their eyes, illegitimate Catholic regime fronted by Elizabeth, who's largely just a puppet. So while the English probably couldn't mount an invasion to bring the Scots back into the fold immediately, as they had a lot to deal with at home, they would do all they could to isolate them internationally until they could. Providing that this new regime would be here to stay, it would be a few years before England could mount an offensive into Scotland. Speaking of the international stage, the reaction in Europe to the destruction of Parliament and subsequent restoration of Catholicism in England would be one of initial shock, followed by a welcoming of England back into the fold. Bridges are rebuilt with Rome as England returns to operating under papal authority. There would be concerns, however, as to how stable this new regime would be in the coming years. England was still majority Protestant, as was Wales, which they would still occupy. Counter-rebellions would always be a risk, with uprisings having to be put down all over the place. Foreign powers might have aided in the initial revolt after the destruction of Parliament, through arming rebels or possibly landing soldiers on the English coast, although this is kind of far-fetched given that Spain was tired of all this conflict. Anglo-Spanish relations would still take a while to normalise. They had, after all, just spent 30 years intermittently warring with one another, only for England to have succumbed to Catholicism from an internal threat rather than a foreign one. It's possible that the Spanish reconquer their former holdings in the Netherlands and bring the Dutch back under their authority without the English aiding the Protestant rebellion there as well. It will come as a surprise to nobody when I say that the political structure of England would have changed drastically had the gunpowder plot been successful. The system we see in Britain in real life, with its constitutional monarchy and parliamentary system which has been exported to the world, would never have evolved in this scenario. In this alternate timeline, I think that England would revert back to an absolute monarchy with Parliament physically removed from the equation, and with many of the people who would most likely support the institution's continued survival dead, it's unlikely its authority would ever be re-established. It would be remembered 
as a quaint peculiarity of the old system that lasted only temporarily. England's power structure would therefore come to resemble one more similar to that of its neighbours on the continent, the same kind of absolute monarchy that was present in France, for example. Without a parliament in Westminster, which slowly tries to assert more power against the king, there would be no English civil war between the parliamentarian roundheads and monarchist cavaliers. No English civil war means that there is no circumstance in which Charles I is executed, allowing for Oliver Cromwell to take over and to oversee a short period in which England is a republic. If England ditches its parliament entirely and becomes an absolute monarchy, there's a whole host of things that change in this alternate timeline. The glorious revolution, the development of modern capitalism, the Industrial Revolution, the Act of Union, elements of Enlightenment philosophy, the colonisation of the New World, I could go on and on listing this stuff. All of these events that had knock-on impacts on one another in real life would be affected, and it becomes a lot harder to make more concrete predictions. Overall, as I've hopefully made clear by now, the gunpowder plot was just phase one in a grander plan to restore Catholicism to power in England. If they succeeded in destroying Parliament, with the King and other notable officials within it, then the country would have been set down a completely different path. It changes the dynamics between the nations on the British Isles, as the religious demographics played a major role in determining allegiances. It changes the political structure too, moving away from the parliamentary one we all recognise today, to one of absolutism. It becomes harder to make a more solid guess of what would have happened had all this gone down when building off of assumptions, but I feel like it's pretty clear that these famous milestones in human history would all have been impacted to varying degrees. I suppose the benefits of running a podcast about counterfactuals is that nobody knows what would have happened had the gunpowder plot succeeded. This is just my best guess as to what I think could have happened had their plans been made a reality. The gunpowder plot was indeed a highly important moment in history worthy of commemoration. In my mind, it's probably one of the most influential non-events in Western history, meaning a time where something famously didn't happen. However, if we are to remember and commemorate the event accurately and appropriately, I think it's important to understand the implications of what would have happened had Catesby and his men been successful in their attempt. Hopefully I've been successful in conveying that to you today. So that's where I'll leave it for today's episode, where I imagined a scenario in which the gunpowder plot succeeded. This Is Not History is written, produced and narrated by me, Tom Delaghi. Be sure to follow on Twitter at NotHistoryPod if you'd like to send ideas for potential episodes and feel free to message me if you disagree with anything I've theorised in this scenario. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you in the next episode of This Is Not History. <laughs>